Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I interview movement enthusiasts to find out who they are, what they do, and why they do it. For this episode, I forgot to ask these two terrific people how they prefer to be introduced. My bad. Since we talk a lot about the strength of family and relationships, I'm going to splurge on a hyphen to highlight their relationship, the union between them. In this interview with Chris and Shirley Darlington-Rowett, we discuss serendipity, coaching, and Chris's work with the London Fire Brigade. They share their thoughts on raising kids, setting aside time for family, and training and moving together. Shirley and Chris share their current struggles, some stories about their past, and how parkour has affected their relationship. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we've begun expanding our show notes and adding chapter marks into our audio files. If you've looked at our show notes on moversmindset.com, or if your podcast player supports using our chapter marks, we would love to hear from you. Leave us a social media comment or DM or email team at moversmindset.com. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. Hey, I'm Shadi. Hi, I'm Chris. Shirley darlington Rowett is a parkour coach, weightlifter, and mother of two. One of the UK's earliest female coaches, Shirley has had the opportunity to represent parkour in many different ways, from articles to TV shows. Shirley's focus has shifted in the last few years from coaching to motherhood as she welcomed their second child into the family. Welcome, Shirley. Thank you. <laughs> Chris Blaine Rowett is a firefighter and father, in addition to being a parkour coach and athlete. Widely known for his in-depth knowledge of strength training, Chris coached for many years with parkour generations and was a driving force in their curriculum development. Recently, Chris has stepped back from coaching to pursue his career at the London Fire Brigade, as well as venturing into fatherhood. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Craig. We're going to go in a bit of a different direction this morning when we start here. And I want to say, uh, this is going to take a little bit of explaining. Bear with me, dear listeners. So Chris, I'm sure you know Vincent Thibault, who wrote a book called Art de Placement and Parkour, A Theory of Practice. It's in English and French. I had the lucky chance to actually be in Quebec, hanging out with those guys and training when the book dropped and I spent the entire day, I think it was September 9th, I spent the entire day sitting in the garden of Joan of Arc, reading the book cover to cover, like as the sun went across the sky. It was great. Why do you care? So that's four years ago. I started writing my thoughts. I would read a chapter and then I would write on my blog, my little thing. And, and I happened to be 15 chapters in three years later, slowly working on it. And the one for chapter 16 has been sitting on the next to write pile. So I got up this morning, I had some free time and I thought, I'm really feeling like I want to work on part of the Bo's book. I open up chapter 16. Do you know what starts chap chapter 16? I have is? no idea. No. Chapter 16 is don't be that guy. The first three words of chapter 16 are Chris Blaine Roat once said, and I, I like, I'm staring <laughs> at my computer and I'm going, I mean, all right, I don't, I'm going to talk about serendipity is where I'm going with this, but I read that and I'm like, all right, okay, hold on, stop the process. What are the chances of, I read that book before I even had the idea for the project that became this project before it was a podcast. So like we've all those threads together. I'm 6,000 kilometers from home. I'm yeah. sitting in a rented flat. Chris Rowat is coming over with Shirley to talk at two o'clock in the afternoon. And at eight o'clock I'm sipping tea and I read chapter 16. Chris, Bla I'm like, that's very what? strange. <laughs> Serendipity. So I had like this physical shot of adrenaline. And then I was like, my mind went racing, like all the things we're going to talk about. And I had like a renewed vigor for the whole, I like the project because it's often a labor with some love. I right? can imagine. Yeah. So I was like this, I'm like, this is our grand love. Anyway, okay. So serendipity I think is actually BS and I think it's just your wonderful pattern matching brain finding little clips of things and then going oh that pattern looks more interesting than usual and then you have a reaction that. right exactly and the chapter 16 you need to go buy the go buy Vincent's book it's really good but chapter 16 talks about don't be the guy who comes over and smashes the jump that your friend is trying to break like well dude it's you don't be that guy yeah. that's what the chapter's about but I actually thought you know I could flip that over and I'm probably chapter 17 does if I remember how Vincent and writes, I can flip that over and say, it's also good to be the person who spontaneously is around, maybe breaking your own jump, maybe coming over and talking to them to provide those little moments of serendipity and randomness yeah. that could be the spark that in, you know changes that person's life. So long way. So my question here is, does anything spring to mind when I ask you, what can you think of when I say what's been serendipitous or what has really like in terms of a spark inspired you guys lately? That's a good question. I can't think of the word serendipity without thinking about Brian. If I, those of you that don't know, in fact, I'm sure the majority of people listening to this probably know who Brian was. Mm -hmm. I don't even have to use his surname. If you, if you know the parkour community, mm -hmm. you know Brian. Yeah, Brian. And Brian was a very good friend of ours um, who passed away, sadly, a few years ago. 
And Brian was the sort of guy that if you were hanging out with him or if you were traveling somewhere with him, then you would always bump into someone that knows Brian. Always. Mm -hmm. You couldn't do a single journey without finding someone that Brian knew he'd say hello to. It would be from his past, either from basketball or from one of the pursuits he took up for just a week here or a week there. He would always bump into people. He fully believed in this concept mm -hmm. of things are meant to be. And he'll just go for it and see what happens. And um, yeah, I think probably five or six times I can remember being with Brian on a train somewhere. And suddenly someone would walk over and be like, Brian, Brian. Like, oh, wow, I haven't seen you for 15 years. And I just start talking in the, in the lift or on the tube, wherever mm -hmm. it was. So I think I would, I would say I didn't believe in it until I started spending more time with Brian. And I was like, there's something to this. He's kind of tuned into some sort of wavelength here where he is floating across the universe, just meeting people that he knows from his past and a completely different wavelength from me. It never happens to me, but it always yeah. happened to Brian. So the first thing I think of when I hear that word is Brian for sure. Chris Grant's another guy that bumped into Brian randomly all the time, hmm. whether it was, it was in London or whether it was in Glasgow. He'll tell you some stories about that, I'm sure. But yeah, I think, um, I don't know how it is for you, Shelley, but that's when it comes to things happening for a reason, Brian's the first person yeah, no, that comes definitely. to mind. I think a next topic that would be particularly easy and obvious would be to talk about Indy. Congratulations, first of all. Let's say... Thank you very much. 18 months? 20 months, yeah. 20 months. Yeah. A pretty good guess without... Yeah, I actually really didn't cheat and look. I'm just I'm totally guessing. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why I thought that, but it's like time flies. I always say time flies when you're old or in denial. Both. So <laughs> I was hoping, as people who listen have noticed, we usually have a single guest. Sometimes we do two. And I was kind of hoping that I could mic up Indy and that maybe Indy would say a few words, but she's sleeping. So we're trying to keep it down a little bit without waking up Indy. But is there anything that springs to mind when I ask about... Do you feel like there's any pressure to raise the ultimate parkour athlete? <laughs> <laughs> um, no. <laughs> Good. I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> I think I very much like Tyler, uh, my son. Um, you know, whatever he wants to do, obviously we're going to support him, whether that's football, which he does love, mm -hmm. or climbing or dancing or mm -hmm. singing whatever he wants to do and very much when he was little he was exposed to parkour from I think I started parkour when he was two years old yeah so he's about two years old so he'd been exposed to parkour for a long time but he didn't see it as parkour it was just movement so mm -hmm. you know he'd be in the play park and he'd like maybe cycle in his bike to the climbing wall climb up the little climbing wall mm -hmm. jump across a little you know piece yeah, of railing traverse, right? it was just just moved you right. know so um i think we'll keep that kind of mindset with with india it's just movement is movement right so whatever she wants to do she can do she doesn't want to do parkour <laughs> she'll do it naturally anyway because it's normal for that to you know happen yeah i think yeah. we both realize that if we push it too hard then it's probably going to be one of those things that she rebels against so if it just naturally happens and we encourage it when it does happen mm -hmm. then i think she's more likely to get the most benefit from it so I think growing up, both Shelley and I had different pressures from our parents at different times. And I think it's natural for all kids growing up to kind of rebel against their parents. So if they're always saying, oh, come and do this, come and do this, a lot of the time you'll find they push back and say, no, I want to go there. So as much as I'd love to turn Indy into the ultimate parkour weapon, um, <laughs> I think the only way to do that is to just let it happen if it's going to happen. Yeah. Train the way we train mm -hmm. and expose her to that. She'll always be around training, whether it's from us or from our friends and our family. So encourage it where it happens and um, just keep her safe and keep her within the boundaries of kind of um, safety. Uh, whatever happens in the middle happens in the middle. So yeah, I, I think my secret agenda is to turn her into the ultimate parkour weapon, but how we go about it is <laughs> going to be the... It. Yeah. Well, it's, it's team. Like, you know, it takes balance, I think. But Exactly. When you guys think about coaching, is coaching something that you do... I almost want to say together, but what I mean is, do you have like a vision for what you would like to accomplish with coaching in the world? And then like you team up against the rest of us, like, you know, surely you can sneak attack them with the parkour, but it's not going to be like, oh, but secretly we're actually doing conditioning. And then like Blaine, you come at it from, oh, it's actually going to look like this, but it's actually secretly just conditioning. Like, do you, do you like really work together like that? Or is it something that you both do? And then it's kind of more like a day job that you just saw now i'm home like i'm just kind of I've, I've never talked to people where both people were such accomplished physical practitioners and movers and so accomplished at coaching so i'm just like i wonder what interplay there is do you mean like 
are coaching now or just coaching in general? Like how uh, years take, before? I'll take either answer. Okay. I, I love questions where I get the answer and then I get both versions of the phone. <laughs> that's awesome. Yes. Yes. That's what I mean. <laughs> I think, I mean, obviously we've been together for a long time. We talk about um, lots of different things and that does cover coaching and how we feel about life and physical training and everything in between. So I think we have our own ideas, our individual ideas about coaching or what we want to bring, Mm -hmm. but it does end up just complementing each other. So it's kind of very similar vision Okay. without, I suppose, that happening on purpose. Is it, do you have conversations about where the intention, I'm going to say who, like I always say somebody is steering the ship. There could be two commanders on the bridge, but do you have conversations where you talk about what you would like to see appear in the world? So not just like Shirley has her vision, Chris has his vision, but like do do you form those visions together or are you like on separate journeys as a team sport or? I think when it comes to both coaching and training, even though people from the outside might look at Shirley and I as almost the same entity in some ways, <laughs> um, we don't train together that often and we don't coach together that often. Mm. So we've done a lot of coaching. We've done a lot of training, but the amount of times that, yeah, sorry, that's that a colossal understatement. <laughs> just like, did you just say done a lot of training? <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your training. That's fine. <laughs> But the amount, the amount of time we've done both of those things together is actually fairly limited in some ways. So we're always talking about training. We're always talking about coaching mm-hmm. and lessons learned from, from both. The amount of time we spend together doing the coaching or the training part isn't that much. Mm. So I think a lot of the time we, we go off and do our own thing, whether, whether it's training, whether it's coaching. We come back. We discuss it. We both learn from part of that process. my share of the experience. And we both progress from that point onwards. Even if it was something that Shelley did in terms of training, she might have been like, I did this thing with uh, pull-ups, which is a different sort of approach to it, Mm -hmm. with different rest times. And I use this kettlebell and blah, blah, blah. It gives me an idea and thinking, okay, I wonder how that would affect me. So even though we haven't done the session together, I think it does change the way my next session might go or I might approach pull-ups in the future because Shelley knows me very, very well. Mm -hmm. And if she's mentioned it to me, it means that I can take something from it. So I think that our approach to training and coaching is very similar, very aligned. Our values are very aligned, but we haven't spent a lot of time coaching or training together, Mm. which is really interesting, really unusual in some ways. I'm now trying to think of what the original question was, which was, Craig, (laughs) I I don't know that I can repeat it, but what I, I think what I asked you was, did you have a coherent vision as a team? So obviously it isn't like one of you is in charge and one of you is the second in command. But if you imagine a military operation, the people at the top, they behind closed doors, they might have a discussion, but when they come out, it's like a unified, this is what we're doing. And then mm. that, that's important for things to succeed. But I think it's obvious that in a relate in a personal relationship, it's two peers working together. So that's my answer to you asking me, but the question was, I have another thing I wanted to riff off of, which was you mentioned that, you paused and said, obviously, Shirley knows me very well, so she wouldn't have brought it up unless she felt. And I was like, oh, wait, it's like the perfect coach because you have someone who knows, I mean, the perfect coach. They know exactly how to demotivate you. Like one oh, thing, yes. like kid like Tracy can cut me down with one. Like she yeah. would know exactly what to say. One word know, at the right one, moment. Yeah, one word or less. <laughs> you know, one word. But assuming that the coach is benevolent you could use those superpowers of observation to be, you know, I, I learned this little thing today and I want to share it with you. So that, that's a, an interesting little thing that, un, that got uncovered there that I wasn't expecting. Hmm. You, like you were going to say something. No, no, I was just um, thinking, I don't do, I haven't been coaching much parkour for maybe since like halfway through my pregnancy. I do still coach parkour regularly, weekly, just with my own clients, mm-hmm. which I, it's just, but it's, I'm, I haven't been doing like running classes or coaching at events for probably close to about two years now, maybe a little bit longer. But one of the things that like from being so close with someone whose technical and physical ability is higher than mine, how that really helped me was because I knew Chris so well, what he was able to do, what he was capable of doing. When I'm walking around the streets of London or wherever I am, I might see, I'll see a particular jump or a particular challenge. Like, oh, Chris, that, he would really enjoy that. That would be really challenging for him. That would be a good one for him to work on. So actually, for me, it really helped me develop as a coach to see further than what my technical right. and physical capabilities are, which is really important because, you know, obviously you need to be able to create an environment where people feel safe and challenged and it has to be further than what you are True. physically and technically capable of. Otherwise, you'd be limited. So, yeah, I really feel like that also just helped me 
I suppose it's the same thing as like having close friends and we all have different abilities and capabilities. So it just helps to broaden my vision as, as a coach. So it's good. Yeah. That's a very good point. One of the things you mentioned before, Craig, was kind of about how as two coaches spend a lot of time together, do we kind of plot in terms of world domination and trying to steer our overall coaching towards I, a certain I direction. I was hoping you were because the world needs to be nominated <laughs> by people who know what they're doing. But anyway, guys. Um, which was a really good question. And I think my answer to that is that it's, it's kind of much more of a personal connection thing with me. I try and make personal connections in classes with mm. individuals and try and have a, a positive effect and a strong effect on one individual in some ways. So rather than kind of going out there with an overall message that I want to get out there in terms of uh, coaching maybe for that class or for a group of students in general, I think I try and treat each of the people in the, in the session as an individual almost and try and pick up as to kind of where, they are, where they're at mentally, where they're at physically, mm-hmm. technically, where are the, the boundaries there, what do they need as an individual kind of next. So, And maybe their motivation is completely different. Maybe their motivation is just they're coming to class for fitness reasons or they're coming to class to forget about their troubles at home or whatever it might be. So there is probably ways of having an overall approach to this, this sort of thing that would make a a big impact to a large group. I think my approach to it's always been quite small, uh, small scale, and lots of individual connections in a session or through a series of classes. And I think for me personally, that's worked a little bit better for me. I'm sure there's coaches out there who do a really good job of having kind of an overall theme that's dragging everything towards that way. But I think I'm more effective at kind of creating those personal relationships in classes and sessions and and having a a way of connecting with someone and figuring out what what, what do they want from this? Why are they here? And then steering that individual in that sort of direction throughout the session. So you might have 10 people in a class who want 10 different things. And I think my approach to coaching is trying to connect those 10 different people to myself and then figure out how I can push each of them forward a little bit on that journey because they're probably not all going in the same direction. They're probably not all the class for the same reason to begin with. Surely, I don't want to say that you're quiet, but you're very, in your own words, you're very Shirley. And how... Which actually isn't very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> so what did, you, what did you mean? So we need to get this in here somehow. So we need to start it somehow. So I don't want to say you're very quiet, but you're very quiet. <laughs> I actually think I'm the opposite. So I think actually Chris is more relaxed and quiet and then my energy is higher. <laughs> Okay, I mean, now we got to talk about shirley. that because this is very opposite at the moment. So I know why. Okay. Um, <laughs> so right. part of you'll be able to wrap it up better than I can. Because... Right now, Shelly's firewall is working overtime to try and stop her from being too Shelly. <laughs> oh, there's nothing. So I can see the brain really ticking here and going crazy, and it's like oh, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say well, that. You, you should say that. You should say that. I, I thought it was interesting when you begin to interview people. It's one thing to interview one particular person who would normally be sitting directly in front of me <laughs> and to be able to just get a feel for what they want to talk about. But with two people, it's tricky because you guys are passing the conversational dynamics back mm. and forth. And I don't want to lie. I'm just like, I just want to watch. Like, I'm just watching you guys talk. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, like, this strikes me that the, this dynamic is the reverse of the normal. Normally, Chris seems to be quieter. And Shirley would be all over this. But today <laughs> we're getting quiet, Shirley. And... And uh, Chris is on. So I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that or if you want to, like, what's, what's up with that? <laughs> <laughs> and you can't see them looking at each other like, I don't know, do you want to tell them or should I tell them? <laughs> I, th- I think probably most people that I meet would class me as a quiet person. <laughs> but here I am doing most of the talking. Right. But I think it is because Shelley's mind is very busy mm-hmm. and she has so many good ideas. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> and right now she's trying to hold them all back. But, uh, yeah. I think after a few minutes. I was thinking more like what this looks like is two people in RPGs and you're being forced to tank. Like send Chris out in the front to Craig. Feed him to Craig. Put Chris out in front. Chris can talk and take one for the team. Shirley? Shirley, in an attempt to get you to talk more. One of the thoughts that sprung to mind when I saw that Chris was going into the fire brigade was like, and this is going to sound funny. If people are listening who don't do parkour, everybody thinks parkour is dangerous. It's not. So I know yes, that Shirley doesn't not. sit at home like, Chris is going to hurt himself. And that's not what's going on. But parkour is completely safe. But the fire brigade, I'm thinking the fire brigade could be kind of dangerous. So how did like how did this go down? Like I'm guessing that it was Chris's childhood dream, like everybody used to be a fireman. But why now? Why did you, I'm going to say, let him do this? Or isn't, doesn't, like, doesn't it seem dangerous? Or what are your thoughts on, on that? Quite a lot of people have asked me that, actually. Don't you find it dangerous? But actually, 
I mean, through doing parkour, you know, it's, it's, you could say it's managed risk, right? Mm -hmm. But that's like every day you manage risk. But, um, as I got to know more about the procedures in the fire brigade, I realized there are so many procedures in place to keep the fire brigade safe. Mm -hmm. And it's really not about being the hero. You know, there are guidelines that you need to follow so that you're safe, so that your team is safe. And I, I think I just kind of have faith in faith in that. And I know that Chris isn't going to try and be that hero at that point, you know, because actually if he does what he's, if he's not where he's supposed to be, then actually he puts the rest of his team at risk. And so, yeah, I believe in his team. Mm. I believe in him. Um, no, I, tr I trust that he'll make the right decision if those moments call for those kind of decisions. And now, of course, we have to ask, so you've accomplished every kid's childhood dream of becoming a firefighter. I don't want to say something as point, like directionless as what's that like, but my question would be, what about it surprised you the most? Uh, so, yes, it was absolutely my childhood dream. It was one of the many things that I thought about as a, as a kid that I would love to do and love to try and have be a cat and have nine lives and then try <laughs> each of them a different way. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, so, over. <laughs> yeah, um, I think. Becoming a firefighter was one of those things as a, as a childhood dream that a lot of people have. And um, I think what surprised me the most about becoming a firefighter was the daily approach to responding to incidents. I think there's a lot of things that are hidden behind a curtain when it comes to the way cities actually work mm. and countries actually work in terms of, you know, that bad things happen to people in big cities. People get hit by cars, people take their own lives Kitchen there are fires, fires right. there are there are accidents there are a lot of bad people out there a lot of good people out there so things happen but on the whole you're not regularly exposed to that it's taken care of by somebody else it's taken mm -hmm. care of very quickly very effectively and largely the public are hidden from that kind of nasty truth i think you're insulated insulated absolutely from that. that's exactly what it is um so my biggest surprise perhaps was what's behind that curtain and how much how many things are happening that are hidden quite well from the public. So I was only on the job for three days before I attended my first kind of fatal incident where someone passed away. And I think I maybe thought that it would be a bit longer before that would happen. And it doesn't happen all the time, but it just happened to be for me that it happened on, on day three, my first night shift. And I think that the I didn't realize the strength of a lot of the individuals who attend these scenes and manage these sort of things. And kind of the shift they've had mentally towards being able to deal with that emotionally and to kind of disconnect from it slightly to be as professional as possible and able as possible at the time to be able to rely on their training rather than becoming quite personally affected by it, at least at that time. So sure, later on, uh, the days after, the weeks after, you might find it has quite a profound effect on you. But on the whole, the people that I've met in the police, in the ambulance service and in the fire brigade have a very unique ability to understand what's needed at that time and then provide that and then their own feelings kind of come into it as, as a factor afterwards so i think um yeah what's hidden behind that curtain surprised me for a start as to how much how many things are happening that we very effectively hide from the public and then the individuals that are experiencing that on a daily weekly monthly basis how they process that how they manage that at the time and then how they use each other in a way to overcome that psychologically and then move on in a, in a healthy mindset, I would say. Because it can, it can affect people, absolutely. And I think if you, if you let it build up, it will affect you. I think one of the hardest things, not hardest, I don't know that, that's right. not really how the about, word. How about... Um... Not the hardest, the, not the trickiest. It would be, and then we'll find the word, it would be to do with Chris, his shift system of mm -hmm. four days on, four days off. Mm -hmm. So our week is never the same. I work part-time, and my days are the same. So finding time to train this is really tricky so i have to be really organized the weeks prior to every week um because every week changes so it's not like if he was working monday to friday okay mondays and wednesdays and fridays at this time he'll be back and i always go and train at this time mm. if that makes sense but instead it's got to be but if i'm working on these three these three days and then he's working two days here and two nights here which points can I train? And then I have to schedule that in weeks in advance. So that can be fairly tricky um, with, the fire, with the fire brigade. But, it, but that's also to do with having a young child. You've got to be realistic about how much you can train and utilize the time you have. 
I never wanted to be one of those people who were like, oh, I just never train anymore because I have children. Life changed, right? No, yeah. I've also been there already with Tyler, my, young, uh, my oldest, who's 13. So I started parkour yeah, when he was two years old. Um, so I've, I've had a young child and trained. So it just kind of felt somewhat similar doing it with Indy, if not easier, mm. because I'd, I'd had years of you know, managing my time and years knowing of, how to train. Practice. Yeah. <laughs> years of mom practice, years of training. So yeah, that's a little tricky with, with Chris's shift system at the fire brigade, but we make it work as best we can. And then also making sure we have time for each other or all, all four of us, mm-hmm. because training does play an important role for me for many reasons, you know, have you found that you ever go to, I'm going to use the word excuse, go to training as an excuse to create family time? Like, you know, you set up like, let's all, we should all go do this. And then you, you go there and it's, you were not really training like for real, but we're really playing. It's like, it becomes, let's play together. Have, yeah. have you used it for that? Or do you find that happening? Uh, once or twice we've been like, oh, you know what? Let's, cause Tyler is at school. So he's away in the daytime. Mm-hmm. Uh, once or twice we've, we've just wanted to go and play around together and then obviously Indy, either maybe she's napping or she's around or she's not really old enough to for us to pop her on a rail and look, we'll help you balance. So, but yeah, um, a couple of times, but it's not something we've made a, it's not something we've done regularly just yet. I think as, as she's getting older now, it will be, I train quite a bit with her around, mm-hmm. But I, we don't train so much, us three, just yet. That's the fantastics. We'll get there. <laughs> I think Indy's at an age now where she's quite independent. Before, she was very much reliant on us just to keep her head from bouncing off the floor. And now she's at an age where she can walk and she can explore and she can crawl and she can run and she can jump. So she's if you put her in a space now that has gates mm. all around it, you can pretty much sit back and just watch the show. Mm. And that's given us a lot more freedom when it comes to taking her to the park because suddenly rather than being at the park and having to always be right next to her for safety. Yeah, lifeguard duty. Exactly. Uh, now it's a case of, oh, we can kind of step back and watch. And if we can step back and watch, then we can bounce on this rail. And if we can bounce on the rail, then we can crawl through the tunnel over here and Suddenly, there's a little bit of um, freedom there for all of us, where she's getting to be a little bit more independent and explore her world. Mm. And we're getting to refine that world a little bit ourselves in terms of not just being parents in the park, mm-hmm. but being in the park for ourselves. Mm. So we all go to the park to play rather than we're taking our child to the park to play. I wonder if Indy's going to end up with a different viewpoint on what mommy and daddy are. Mm. than the average child because the average child watches mommy and daddy sitting yeah or on their phone which seems worse um but i'm just wondering what do you thought have did you have you thought about that have you uh, like my thought was like well she's gonna think everybody else is weird <laughs> because wait your parents don't call through the tunnel my parents call through the tunnel what's the matter with you it's like your parents are strange i think we went through that with tyler because he was yeah two so very similar age to indy now so he grew up seeing well, I used to do like pull-ups and push-ups at home like three times a week when he was very young all the time. So he's grown up seeing me right. do, yeah, pull-ups, muscle-ups. Normal human yeah. movement, right. Exactly. Even when he was seven years old, I was like, are you doing pull-ups or chin-ups or muscle-ups? You know, it's just very normal for him. Um, and we used to go to the park with him and maybe I didn't have uh, much time, so maybe I'd be like hanging on a branch Mm-hmm. you know, in between him playing or doing some box jumps whilst pushing him on the swing or whatever. And so now him being 13 years old, does he think we're, he just thinks we're. Yeah, I know he doesn't think that everybody's weird, but I mean, I'm he wondering thinks we're if he, normal. does he notice he the difference? Like, does he look at other adults and go, clearly, sir, you cannot do a pull-up. Yeah, he, 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 <laughs> <laughs> he, he's definitely got some insight on that, I think. And I think he's only now, only recently being 13, he started to kind of think more about, his upbringing was a little bit different. Like we had kettlebells as doorstops. <laughs> we, we didn't have a sofa, but we had a squat rack in our living room <laughs> yeah. for more than a year right. that he would use as a climbing frame. Mm. Uh, we would use to squat and we would use to dry our clothes. Like mm. it, was, it was just a piece of <laughs> it's our actually furniture. It's multifunctional on like a sofa, which you can only do one exactly. thing like that. <laughs> He'd go to his friend's house and they wouldn't have a squat rack in the living room. <laughs> Where's your squat rack? <laughs> exactly. So I think only now... <laughs> And only recently. <laughs> just, sorry, I'm just, him walking in and be like, but wait, how do you guys do squats? Yeah, exactly. like, <laughs> how do you train? Where do your parents train? <laughs> Why do you keep your kettlebells? Right. 
Yeah, yeah I think only recently he started to realize that his upbringing was slightly different and that we, we had things that we enjoyed in our lives. And I think we both believe that when you have children, it shouldn't be the end of your life and the beginning of theirs. Right. You should both be able to enjoy your lives. So if we enjoy training and it's a part of our lives, we shouldn't suppress that. We should just find ways to bring it all together. Yeah, and mm. just adapt. Yeah. Yeah, I think also one of the really nice things with Tyler growing up which will happen will be the same with Indy was that we would train a lot outdoors mm-hmm. of course. But what I mean so I would train with him around and so he would have so when I if I said okay Tyler I'm going to go and train he'd understand what that looked like and what that was. Oh, okay. So the visual the visualization for him as a young boy like oh i know what my mom does when she goes to train mm-hmm. it's not this ah, place called the gym, the gym that i don't know what it is and it just takes her away it's like oh, i know what mom does yeah sure yeah mom's training mm. and um i think that's just really important to kind of involve your children in in that exercise or movement or training whatever you want to you know whatever you're doing to give them that real idea of what it is you're doing and to normalize it because it is it's normal and it's healthy and it's great absolutely and i just inhaled like wait i'm i'm wondering if all right, so the average child might actually think of their parents as being helicopter parents. I mean, they might not have the words for that, but they're mm. thinking mom and dad are hovering and I wish mom and dad would leave me alone so that I can play. And I'm wondering if by showing him that you were doing your own thing, but yet still obviously present yeah. and being a parent, I'm wondering if that didn't actually free him up more because he didn't feel the need to push you away at any point. Yeah. I don't know whether that's the case or not, but I'm, I'm wondering if that might not be a deep insight into parenting that... That's another thing that has been mm. lost, not just everyone's own personal movement, but the fact that because you're only focusing on the child, now the child wants to push you away at some point. I, yeah. I don't know. It's just a thought I had. It, it's, and I think it's, it's a relevant thought. I mean, you know, when they're young like that and, and for many years and still for us as adults, we need the space to discover and explore and to learn on our own. And it's the same even for Indy now when we see her climbing something. We're around. We're ready to spot but we're going to let her discover it on her own because how is she going to learn how mm-hmm. to climb it if we don't allow her to discover that? So I think that's really important. And again, we had some practice with Tyler. So when he was younger, we didn't push parkour on him so much. It was like, whatever you want to do, you, you can do it. And we're going to support you. But we did teach him how to climb up and climb down from a wall. Mm. The reason being is he loves football his friends would or him would often kick a ball onto a shed. Mm. He could climb up and climb down safely. Safely, Yeah. So it was a tool that he could use to his advantage mm. and to keep him safe. And it never went further than, than that. And then he just discovered and explored spaces on his own because that's what, you know, children do. And I think it will be the same with India. I mean, we see it now on a smaller scale in the living room or out in the play park. She wants to, you know, climb things and explore instead of just picking her off it will just be there to support her if she needs it. So I've been asking a ton of questions and I'm just wondering, is there anything else that you guys want to share that you want to bring up randomly that I haven't gotten anywhere near that you were hoping I wouldn't know about or? Do you want to tell a story? (laughs) I'd like to continue a trend that I had on this podcast actually. (laughs) And it was the podcast and the interview with uh, Martin from Denmark. Mm -hmm. Um, oh, his story was kind of about how he met Laurent, right? Mm-hmm. I think. So I'm going to... Yeah, uh, their, their pilgrimage uh, episode. Ooh, I don't remember the number. Come on, no pressure, Craig. Denmark's... It was the Denmark parkour community's pilgrimage to go and try and find Yamakasi in the wild. <laughs> that was just, <laughs> They just like went to Paris. Like, I don't know, they should be at Bercy. No, are they? They just went and tried to find them and then they eventually Amazing. found Laurent. Yeah, so they stumbled it, across Laurent. Yes, it was his pilgrimage and they literally stumbled on Laurent. Hmm. Um, so Sorry. I'm going to add a second player to that to that loop, I think. And it's uh, Williams, Williams Bell. Mm. I stumbled into him with a group back in maybe 2005, I think, during my first trip to Lease. And it was a trip to Lease with some of the, who are, who are now old school parkour guys. So a few guys from Cambridge, a few guys from London. We went out to Lease, we took the train over there, and we were young, we went adventure seeking, mm. and where else to go but, but Lease headed over there we didn't really know anyone that was living there but we had one contact who we met up with and from there it was just kind of a, a week-long training trip as you can imagine in, mm. in that sort of environment and we bumped into everyone everyone who's anyone we, we saw there we saw david bell we saw sebastian goodo and a bunch of the other guys who were just out and about training in their local area so we were very privileged to be able to absorb some of that and soak it up and see how they train and talk to them and, and share some ideas with them but we didn't meet williams until the very last day 
We didn't meet him in Lise. We didn't meet him in Every. We were on the way back to get our train to go home. We were running a little bit behind, of course, as parkour people often do, yeah. apart from the Germans. <laughs> so we were running a little bit behind, and it wasn't until we got to the first train station that we realized that a lot of the trains were closed that day. A lot of the train lines were shut down because of uh, major works. So we we're going to have a real issue finding our way to where we had to go. We got on the first train, got to where we were aiming for in that first instance, got off the train and realized that the next three connecting journeys were all shut down. There was replacement buses, there were replacement train lines, everything was in French. We didn't speak French, we were having some real issues. So we went upstairs and on the way up the escalator, we looked across and we saw someone dressed in what can only be described as sort of parkour attire, <laughs> very baggy trousers and a vest top it was it was summertime and some very defined musculature that could only come from yes. some sort of physical discipline yeah. long and, hair and one percent or two percent body fat <laughs> exactly <laughs> that and the, the thing that really stood out was we were going up the escalator on the right hand side this gentleman was going up in the middle and we could see that he's, he was doing calf raises on the escalator so he was going up and then up and then up and down <laughs> and we're not holding the sides just right, freestanding just, on this moving escalator we're like, okay this guy looks like he's training guy. yeah he's doing something so we get to the top, we, we have no idea where to go, we're, we're lost. And we see this guy heading towards the left side, so we thought, let's just follow, we're going nowhere, let's follow him, see where he goes. We follow him, and he gets on a train, and we get on the train, we go, now we'll, we'll see where this one goes, we're just picking a random way. So we get on the train, and he turns around, and it's Williams Bell. We recognize him from the Yamakaze movie, and we're all a bit shell-shocked, standing at the side, not really sure what to do, what to say. He's noticed us, but he's playing it cool and looking around right. and doing his own thing. So one of the guys we were with went over to him and said, oh, do you do, you do parkour? <laughs> and he looked him straight in the eye and said, no. no. Went back to doing what he was doing, which was looking out the window. So we were like, oh, okay, that, that didn't really work. And the guy, it was Jason, actually, a guy called Jason. He took a chance and he was like, ah, uh, Yamakazi? And then everything changed. Okay. William's whole expression changed. He opened up. And immediately his face went from not being interested in this group of young parkour tourists to just immediate warmth and love. So... In very broken English, he managed to ask us where we were going. It was strange to him that we got on this particular train. We said we didn't know where we were going. We're trying to get back we're to our Eurostar. Right? We're trying to go home and we're following you. So we said, okay, I'll help you. So we get to the next stop. We get off. We go back. And he spends the next maybe hour, hour and a half negotiating Paris and all these different train lines and connecting lines uh, and got us all the way back to where we had to be with about half an hour to spare. Oof. Without him, we would have had absolutely no chance. We get there, we have half an hour to spare, we thank him, we, we didn't really know what to say, we're just incredibly grateful. And he says, oh, you've got 30 minutes, do you want to do some training? <laughs> like, like, I know what happened. Right? <laughs> you know what's going to happen here, right? So like, of course we're going to train. Um, so we have literally 30 minutes, we're on the, the correct platform where we have to be and, and we train. So right. we have some time. When you're on the platform, right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> All there is is one set of stairs and a couple of railings. And we spend the next sort of 27, 28 minutes just moving around together, having fun. Not many words was were shared because it was very broken English. All we tried to do was express our gratitude of, for him to get us where we had to be. And um, everything else was shared just through movement, just trying some small challenges. And when it was time for us to leave, we, we thanked him again. He said it was very nice to meet you. And we went our separate ways. Hmm. So it's a complete chance encounter. We talked earlier about believing in serendipity and things that are meant to be. I'm not sure if I believe in that. But on that day, that was meant to be. We found him. We took a chance and followed him like a stalker. Uh, it got us home. If it hadn't been for Williams, we would have been uh, been lost. So I think that's that's part two of your Yamakazi mm. discovery mm. stories discovery with uh, Laurent, the first one, that's Williams. So I'm sure there's many stories of how people have met different members of the Yamak to, to come, but that might add a little bit to the uh, to the stories. Chris, uh, you just like went all the way back to serendipity. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> but you were going to say something about Indy. So... When I was pregnant with Indy, I was six days overdue, and Chris had his induction for the fire brigade coming up. If he missed this induction, he would have to wait, I think, another month or two to get into the next induction. So he really needed to go to the induction, but I was six days overdue at this point. So Chris goes off to the induction. I'm still heavily pregnant. I have some contractions throughout the day, but that, that's been quite normal for the last week. Chris and I meet each other at home about 5, 5.30, still having contractions. And then I have her by 11.30 that evening. But it was like she literally waited mm. for him to be finished. <laughs> so nothing. And then it just happened within a couple of hours and she was here. Mm. Yeah, we thought the timing wouldn't be an issue. And then as each day went past and Shirley was more and more overdue, 
We thought it's going to happen any moment now. <laughs> and do I call up and do I cancel this really important meeting for the fire brigade or do I just see what happens? And I let them know. I said, look, my wife is heavily pregnant and there may be a moment where I have to just dash off and deal with this. And they said, no problem. <laughs> I think that was one of the things that really appealed to me about the organization is that they are very much family-based in, in many ways. They completely understood, even though there are thousands of people that wanted to get into the fire brigade. It's and it's, it's, it's a lot of applicants that go through. So I was worried that I would just lose my place or something might happen, but they were totally understanding. I think that really helped me to understand that it is quite a family-based organization and that they go a long way to, towards um, encouraging that sort of thing. So I was prepared to take the call, run off, get to the hospital as soon as I could to, to be with Shirley, but it didn't happen. So yeah, I managed to get through the whole day. I did the physical testing. I did the the written exam, all the different bits and pieces, finished off, checked my phone, still nothing. Everything's fine. And then I yeah, got home and with... Not too much more time. We had to rush off to the hospital, yeah. and um, Indy was, yeah, she held she held out and waited for me basically, <laughs> which is very grateful. <laughs> which was also your granddad's birthday, so her, she was born on the same day as her great grandfather, which was very cute. cute. It was very cute. Yeah. Also serendipitous. Yes, it's all coming back to that. I'm coming. starting to believe more and more. <laughs> this definitely is the theme of this podcast. Um, is there a, kind of switching gears here? Is there anything that you guys would say or be willing to share that you find challenging, particularly challenging at the moment, either with work or with having a small child? Or, but one thing I often ask people is like having this sort of shift the love of your life so you don't spend all of your time parkour teaching now. You're now working on other things. Like, just what's what's on your minds as challenging? Oh. We, I think we make quite a lot of effort to make sure we have time for each other and time for our unit of four. There's you know, four of us in the family. Uh, time for ourselves to train. Just trying to find that balance. And I think that's, that balance is always shifting and you're always having to adapt to that, especially when you have a young, a young, young child. Mm-hmm. So especially with Chris working four days on, four days off. And then I work, like, let's say, three days a week just trying to find that balance between to make sure everyone is happy and everything's working well. And as I mentioned, still getting that time to train for ourselves um, and training effectively. You know, we don't, I don't have that four hours a day to train now, <laughs> which I point. used to have before. Yeah. So just like, yeah, you know, I'm not right. hanging out yeah, for four hours and then just like working through or even just like discovering a spot for three or four hours and taking a break or, you know, it's a different type of Much training more intentional. now. Right. Yeah, right. it has to, or more sometimes I just, so if it, if I want to go out and play, I know I've got, let's say, 45 minutes. So I say, I've got this 45 minutes, I'm going to go out and play and discover within that time. And then I just allow whatever to happen, happen. But yeah, being really effective with the time I have to train, I think is the thing that's taken the longest to adapt to again. Oh, that, I think. So the constraint of, it used to be you were in charge of, you know, deciding how much time you're going to train with. And now it's that that has to fit in this yeah. much time. And that's yeah. changed the way you have to sort of program your gum. So do you find it's interesting to like, Ooh, this is like programming for a student. I'm really having to program my own training. Yeah. yeah I have to think a lot about it, but then also I want it to be like playful and light and not get too strict on, okay, I only have this time and I must do, there's mm-hmm. no must, you know, I have a structure and a program for myself in regards to the strength and conditioning side. And then with my parkour practice at the moment, it's just like playing. Sometimes I'm working on breaking some jumps. Sometimes I'm working on one particular technique. Sometimes I'm doing whatever the hell I feel like and Mm. just exploring the space and feeling the space. So having time for like both of those is really important for, for me to be a better wife, better, you know, partner, better mother, better employee, you know, all of those things. Definitely have that time for for myself but yeah just using it effectively i think is the key when you have when you're juggling a lot of different things whether that's children or just life Shirley, how about one last question out of the blue is there a particular lesson that your mother or father taught you that's stuck with you i think probably from both of them a little bit more from my mother i had a buddhist upbringing so both my parents my father's not with us anymore but he was, and my mum is a Buddhist, so Nishin Daishon in Buddhism. But anyway, growing up, um, if I had a problem at school or something that was going on in my life when I was very young, my mum would always ask me to, you know, chant for it. But the underlying messaging, message being that chant for you to change yourself so you can change your environment. So as opposed to wanting to change someone else, changing yourself so that you can change your environment and your situation. And I think... That then starting parkour, that 
I mean, that kind of that mindset and that philosophy really played into the parkour mm. practice. So I think that stayed with me as a child and then through to adulthood was, I suppose, looking inwards. Looking inwards. That's saying so cheesy, but it's true. Looking inwards to change, you know, things that are going on in our lives rather than. I noticed definitely during my pregnancy, this pregnancy, recent pregnancy, and I posted quite a few videos of my training and like my thoughts mm -hmm. around pregnancy and training and parkour and all of that stuff. I had lots of feedback from lots of different women and guys as well. Being like, oh, it's, it's really insightful for me because actually I, had, I have some apprehension about having children and how my body's going to change. How's that going to change my practice? So all these kind of things. So I think I wanted to like shed a little bit of light and talk a little bit about maybe a small bit about training during pregnancy, but more about training postpartum when you've just had the baby. I think what changes the most, obviously your body changes, but within time it, it more or less returns to how it, I feel exactly how I felt before I had mm. Indy. And obviously that differs person to person because we're all different. But I think what changes the most is the time that you have. Just you don't have as much time to train but that doesn't mean that you don't train anymore, you know, so it's just using the time in a different way. Hmm. I can hear that in the background. I was, was yeah. going to say, Indy has joined us now. Indy, <laughs> yeah. Indy woke up from her nap, but I was hoping that we could get her to talk, but I don't think she wants she to join us. She just wants to play. She just wants to play. Yeah. That's an excellent thing. <laughs> but I don't know how to draw that, to wrap that up. I think it was just take, just, you know, during that postpartum period, taking that time to be patient with yourself and rest and repair. This, the more patient you are at that point and doing your breathing exercises and making sure that your pelvic floor mm -hmm. has recovered and that your body has recovered, you're going to be stronger when you come back. So it's really worth that. And without saying that birth is like an injury, it kind of is. It has parallels. You have to have that, you know, that rehabilitation process. You can't just jump back in. Even if you have 10 years of parkour experience, it doesn't matter. Right. You have to take that time. And like I mentioned earlier, I think it was six months until I did my first climb up because before that hanging on a wall, I could feel too much pressure and something didn't feel right. So I knew it wasn't the time to do something so dynamic. So yeah, just take that time. There is no timeline. Right. It, it takes as long as it takes. That's it really. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I love to collect stories. If you hear someone tell a story and the story that they pick, the words they use, their passion, that all comes through and it tells you as much about them as it does the actual story. So I love getting a chance to say, do you guys have a story that you would like to share? <laughs> I think I'll, just, I'll share the story of when we first met. <laughs> a little bit of gossip. It has a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was like, isn't it a happy ending? I hope so. <laughs> I started parkour in May 2008, and we met December 2008 at a rendezvous event, a Parkour Generations event in London, Waterloo. Uh, so I've been training for about six months. Chris was coaching at the event. I was taking part. How did we actually, where did we, so we met. No pressure, Shirley. No. <laughs> I mean, you, you could probably name the spot if you claim that you know the answer and she doesn't. We have a picture of, I mean, we, we took a picture of that Busted. spot when we got married. Yeah, so there's a, there's a cheesy story that goes along with that. So we met, I was doing, I had a small shoulder injury at the time. It was, it was raining a lot that day, the whole day actually during that event. And there was a wall run. So Yao, one of the coaches, was helping me up the wall. Chris was at the top of the wall and there was a set of railings at the top. I clambered up the wall with Yao's help, kind of stepped on his face on the way up, got up to the top of the wall, went to vault the railing. Uh, my foot slipped, so I kind of like ah, screamed in Chris's ear, oh, sorry, and then like jogged around back to the beginning of the queue. That's basically how we met. And that was the first time I saw Shelley, kicking someone in the head, screaming in my ear, and then just running off. So. That's what's called a meat cute in yeah. the film. <laughs> Only not many meat cutes in yeah. Volvo wall run. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly how you two should meet. <laughs> so is there more to the story or is that? There's a, there's a, I mean, obviously there's more to the story, but I mean, is there more to this particular part of the story? <laughs> <laughs> so I finished the event and then Chris was moving to London a couple months later, but he was actually moving in with my, a friend of my fa a friend of the family's. So I volunteered to show him the spots around so they had a bit of independence. Mm -hmm. Hey, 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 hey. Oh, didn't yeah, move that I fast. <laughs> we met December 2008. We didn't get together until August. 
I didn't mean it that That's way. I just meant a great excuse to go hang out with the guy. I can yeah. show him the parkour spots. Yeah. You, you ran. I wasn't. I wasn't in the gutter. <laughs> okay. So I thought. So I thought, so spots tour, right? Yeah. So I, I and uh, showed him all the spots around Kilburn, which is where he was staying. And then we just became friends. Then we we trained together sometimes, and then we just hung out. And one thing led to another. We got together in August. 2009, so it's coming up to 10 years now. We've Congratulations been, thank again. You. Thank you, Greg. We've been married for five, nearly five years and then together nearly 10 years. So when we got engaged, we didn't have a particular date that we wanted to get married. We didn't really mind, to be honest. Mm. So we just thought, hmm, we'd like to get married soon. So we just kind of went for December the 13th, which was the date that we actually met mm-hmm. at Rendezvous. And then we thought, hey, we should, it's really cheesy, but we should take a picture of me trying to do that wall run or mm. hanging on mm. that wall where we first met. So in my wedding dress, which wasn't a big, you know, a big, big, deal, big right? dress. Yeah, yeah, it was this normal dress, I suppose. In my wedding dress anyway, I climbed down to the wall, hung on the wall, and then Chris is kind of leaning over the railing. Uh, okay. um, so that's we one got of our wedding. looks, but it was, it was worth, <laughs> it, was worth sure, it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that, we've got that as a wedding, one of our wedding photos yeah. when we first met. Having just shared a story about how you first met, I think, think, and this is a question, I, I think that when two people have parkour as one of the things they share in common, I think that tends to really make the relationships work well. I mean, I don't know that I'm right, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about, obviously it's important that two people have things in common, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how having parkour in common is a different aspect of being in a relationship. I think when it comes to friendships and relationships, if one or the other person does parkour, then you often find the other person's dragged into it along the way because that's, my story, right? past, that's exactly, my story yeah yeah as you said they're coming home happier yeah, and happier yeah. and they're, they're so excited about what they've just experienced and they're starting to maybe notice differences in other parts of their life that are improving as well mm-hmm. because they're approaching it with um, more of a kind of problem-solving mindset mm-hmm. so i think when one half of the relationship is actively involved in parkour or in some sort of movement discipline uh, or anything positive really it's only natural that the other person would be kind of dragged into it at least on a a surface level, at least to see if it would be something for them as well. And I think when it comes to both people in a relationship practicing parkour, it can lead to quite an intense relationship. And I think it's because of the honesty between the two people. So when you practice parkour, you're regularly exposed to emotions that you wouldn't normally bring to the surface, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Maybe you get really frightened by an experience. Maybe you're very excited by stuff. Things are quite scary. You might cry, you might laugh, and that might all take part in a 15-minute window when you're breaking jumps. <laughs> I've been there. Too. So you're exposed. You're, you're kind of, your, your real self is exposed very quickly, and it's very hard to hide behind those emotions mm-hmm. uh, or, or put a barrier up to hide those emotions. So when two people are in a relationship and they both practice parkour, the relationship tends to be very honest in a lot of ways because it's harder to hide behind some of the emotions that parkour brings out. So you get to see each other upset, scared by something, angry at something. When you both go and train together, there's a lot of experiences that happen that bring your real self to the surface quite quickly. So it's only natural that you would talk about that afterwards and and share those experiences. And I think even the friendships that I have in parkour, I've seen, I've got to know people very, very well through those experiences and layers that would take years to peel away mm-hmm. in other, other situations. They are revealed very quickly between people that practice parkour. So someone that I only met maybe yesterday, today I'm seeing them crying about something mm-hmm. and then walking away from something and then coming back because they're feeling stubborn and then persevering and eventually overcoming yeah, something. Laugh, right? And then there's the joy. So you, you experience a whole range of emotions and how that person deals with those emotions. And I think you get to see people for who they really are quite quickly in parkour. So because they reveal themselves quite quickly mm-hmm. as to what sort of person they are, that builds very honest, strong friendships. Because you know who that person is, they know who you are, and that sort of thing can take years to reveal itself. So I think when it comes to relationships in particular, that's emphasized even more. You get to know someone very, very well, quite quickly, and that leads to quite a deep relationship in many ways, I think. You might find that, I don't know where I'm going this now, I think we can stop it somewhere, <laughs> somewhere there. Yeah, I think. But, <laughs> do, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, no, I know exactly yeah. what you're trying to say. <laughs> do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> no, I just agree with you. <laughs> no, I understand what, what exactly what you're trying to say. I think with, I mean, we, obviously we met through parkour. I think with Chris and I, our practice have always been yet yeah, quite individual. And sometimes we focus in on different parts of our own practices. But we always 
get back to the point where we can share that. And I suppose that's appreciation for what the other person's going through and, and being able to relate to that to an extent. Um, so that definitely helped to make us. I think, well, we built a friendship first and, you know, and then Which other is things. Which a, a good idea. In the, yes. That works out well generally, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, and, and through see, through seeing Shelley practice parkour, I know when she needs some space. I know when she needs some support. Not just in parkour, but in other parts of her life. Right, right. And probably the other way around too. So I think you get to read the other person's signals quite well. And, and that builds to stronger, uh, build stronger relationships. I really believe that. So uh, parkour... Wow, this is tough. Uh, man, my brain is off. You don't want to go too cheesy. That's why well, you're like, oh, nothing yeah. wrong with cheesy. Also, but <laughs> my brain's like, you know, what we're basically saying is that everybody's first date should be a parkour class. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's like, oh exactly wow, that. that's a thing. It would tell you a lot about someone. Yes, it yeah. would. Yeah, it oh really my! Would. Well, first of all, yeah. it's how they own the athletic clothes. Like, can you? <laughs> yeah. like, I have to look good on a first date, right? Yeah. So it's like, well, can you look good and run up a wall? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, maybe that's a little too much stress for people <laughs> on a first date. I think I didn't own any trainers until I started parkour because I didn't go to the gym. I hadn't yeah, done it. Yeah. I had to buy, now, I like threw out all my shoes and bought all their shoes and yeah. I went through Fayos and now I'm on the like Saucony old school runners with yeah. the insoles pulled out. Like it's just, and I, I love like shoes are great. Like I, I actually, I still have my shoes on my feet. That's weird. I normally don't have my shoes on. Like, What's wrong <laughs> with the floor? Um, I normally leave my shoes by the door, but you, have you noticed you walk into people's houses and you can tell whether people are a parkour? It's like, you just walk in, it's yeah. like, this is a parkour household or this is not. And I think it just says something about who you, who you become, like who you become internally is determined by what you do. Like, what's the phrase? We are what we do repeatedly. You know, what you, what you yeah. do in every moment is what you do in this moment or vice versa. Mm. And just those little things come out and you can't hide them. And as, as long as you are on a sane path, it's going to end up well. And if somebody else is on a different path, like if you start doing parkour and you're six, eight months in and your partner is like, yeah, you're still doing that crazy parkour thing. That might say something very fundamental about the other person. So I think relationships are very interesting, but I don't normally get the chance to talk to two people at the same time. <laughs> and of course, the final question, three words to describe your practice. Um, I'd say my practice is consistent, playful, and adaptive. Do you want to explain why? Or do you want me to answer? Okay. <laughs> I didn't well. know if I wasn't, spe- no, if I was no, just supposed to leave the words. Um, you could just leave it hanging. Well, uh, it's consistent because I've consistently trained you know, for the last 11 years, um, whether that was through pregnancy or through postpartum, obviously how I trained changed depending on what was going on. It's playful because it's always about the fun. It's always about the feeling, how I, how moving makes me feel, whether moving is weightlifting, whether moving is parkour, whether moving is sprinting, whatever it is, it's about how it makes me feel and enjoying that process and the adaptive would go back right. into the consistent, yeah, just adapting to whatever is going on in my life. So, yeah, consistent, mm-hmm. playful, adaptive, I'd probably say. I'm really glad you went first, Shirley. It's given me more time to think. So I think if I had to choose three words, I was already thinking about kind of what I do and how I train that sort of thing. But I think the what is the least important part. So if I had to choose three words, it would probably be why, how, and when. The why question is one of the ones that comes up all the time. Um, I think if you ask yourself, why are you training? Why are you still training? Why do you still do parkour? You come up with some really interesting answers that really help to shape the next few weeks, few months of your training. So I regularly ask that question to myself quite a lot, and it helps to kind of refocus me and, and send me the, the, the next direction, I would say. The how is always the same. It's always with a focus on quality first um, and doing things correctly and doing things well before adding distance if it's parkour or adding kilos if it's weightlifting stuff or yeah just kind of taking it one step at a time and focusing on the how things are done rather than just doing it for the sake of it someone very wise once told me the differences in the details i think that's it's very very true how you do something is is, is as important as what you're doing um the when is something i had to to reconsider a bit more recently um just with my body It's, uh, it's holding up really well i'm very happy with it touch wood thank you but I've been doing parkour since I was 17. I'm 32 now, so things have changed a little bit. I know my recovery time has isn't quite the same as it used to be. I can't train the same way every single day. So there's a, there's a right time to do something, and it's probably a less optimal time to do something. So certain days won't be for heavy squats. Certain days <laughs> won't be for big drop jumps. Uh, and, and kind of being able to tune into that and do the right thing on the right day is something that I've learned with time and with maybe a little bit of age, I would say. 
And we all know that kind of last jump of the day is where things tend to tend to go wrong. Your body knows it's done for the day. It's started to cool down already. Mentally, you've switched off. Mm -hmm. I'll just do one more. And then that's when, when things can often happen. So I think asking myself that, when, is this the right time to do this? Is, has been a big thing more recently. And it's, it's so far helped to continue the trend of not having many injuries along this journey. So long may it continue. And I think that by asking those, those three questions to myself quite regularly, I think it will serve me well for the next few years. Thank you very much, guys. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Craig. It's been great. Thank you so much. This was episode 62. For more information, go to moversmindset.com slash 62. There's more to the Movers Mindset Project than just this podcast. Visit our website for more free content, to join our email list, or to read about how you can support this project. And I'll leave you with a final thought from Thomas Paine. To argue with a person who has renounced the use of reason is like administering medicine to the dead. Thanks for listening.